But first, there is a jailing crisis in America. That's according to a new report from the Federal Criminal Justice Clinic at the University of Chicago. It details how detaining people awaiting trial is now the norm instead of the exception, despite laws that say it should be the exact opposite. So here to tell us more is Professor Allison Siegler. She is the author of the report and founder of the Federal Criminal Justice Clinic at the university. Welcome to Reset, Allison. Hi, Sasha. Thanks. Also with us, Kiana Givens, interim federal public defender for the districts of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Great to have you, Kiana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with you, Allison, on some background here. Tell us why you wanted to create the report and how you actually went about conducting the research. So, Sasha, I've been practicing in federal court in Chicago for about 20 years. And my federal criminal justice clinic, you know, we began to see that judges were not necessarily always following the bail law. And so we did some court watching in Chicago. And in the midst of that, we started talking to people around the country and learned the problems that we were seeing were really widespread. Um, and I also sort of looked at the limited public data that was available and saw that these, you know, federal jailing rates were incredibly high. There was very little public information about racial disparities and the race effects of these rates. Why is that? Why was there so little public, publicly available data? It's a great question. I mean, basically, the government keeps a lot of the data under lock and key, and they don't, they don't share it. Um, and so I decided, you know, let's conduct court watching and interviews nationwide um, to understand why are these rates so high? Yeah. yeah, your report, it, it showed that the rate at which people were jailed while awaiting federal trial, it skyrocketed from 29 percent to 75 percent. That was starting back in 1984. That's a huge jump, and it's very shocking. So my question is, what happened in 84? Yes. So what happened in 84 was um, the basically Congress passed something called the Bail Reform Act. Um, this was, uh, this was you know, it's not a progressive law, really. It was under President Reagan. But it ultimately said that pretrial jailing should be the exception, not the norm. Um, and yet um, the jailing rate skyrocketed until, as you said, three out of every four people was being jailed pending trial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I'll tell you what we found, which is, you know, sort of the answer to the why, which is judges are not following the bail laws. And that's leading both to higher jailing rates and also exacerbating racial disparities in the system. So uh, according to the law, judges should lean toward releasing people who are awaiting trial. But that's not what's happening. Absolutely. That's correct. Something that you also point out is that the number of people that uh, were detained is, is higher than in state courts. Why is that? It doesn't make any sense, right? Because in state courts, the many, many uh, crimes in state courts are considered violent crimes. And yet state jailing rates for violent felonies are at 45 percent. And we have this 75 percent. Um, federal jailing rate when only 2% of federal crimes are considered to be violent. Wow. Kiana, let's bring you in here. I'm curious, were you surprised by any of the findings in this report? Absolutely not. I think few of us um, in the criminal justice system were surprised about the findings in this report. Um, Why not? Both. Well, we do this every day. I've been a federal public defender for about 14 years, and this is a regular part of our practice, this detention hearing process. And we regularly see this. We see the disproportionately um, the racial impact of the Bail Reform Act is not evenly dueled out to all people. And plus, I just think it's not surprising, given what we know about race bias in our country. Mm-hmm. And we should not be surprised that it is present in our court system. I find it odd that uh, a public defender 
may not object to a prosecutor saying that someone should be detained, even if it's on improper grounds. Why would that be? I'll tell you what, you know, what we found. I mean, the fact is the federal public defender system in this country is extraordinary and public defenders work incredibly hard for their clients. But what happened is what we found is, you know, judges didn't understand the law. Prosecutors didn't understand the law. And even the defense bar had kind of lost touch with what the law required at that bail hearing. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes defense attorneys were just afraid that judges were going to rule against them and that it might hurt their client if they, um, you know, if they fought um, or they felt that fighting was futile. Um, And judges sometimes don't even let the defense lawyer into court. So there's no one there to make an argument. Yeah. And another finding I'm seeing here in the report, judges in more than a quarter of the federal district courts, uh, they routinely lock people away during that first bail appearance without first providing them with a lawyer. Isn't that illegal, Kiana? Yes, it is absolutely illegal at every level under the Constitution. So is is this because there is a shortage of public defenders or are judges just trying to move through cases as quickly as possible? Um, so my our findings are that um, it's basically just become the practice norm in certain courts for judges not to not to appoint federal public defenders. And it's not, as far as we're seeing, about there not being defenders available. There's a federal public defender office and the judges aren't letting them into the courtroom. Um, and this is absolutely in violation of federal law. As Kiana said, it's a constitutional issue, but it's also a bunch of federal statutes that require judges to appoint lawyers at every stage, you know, and especially before somebody is jailed. The report shows this so-called feedback loop that uh, perpetuates the mass incarceration of of folks awaiting trial. What's that feedback loop, Allison? Sure. The feedback loop is that at the first bail appearance, the prosecutor will ask for somebody to be jailed for reasons not in the law. Um, And then often the defense wasn't objecting. And then the judge was basically rubber stamping that. And, you know, in some cases it was fine. There was a legitimate legal basis for that jailing. Mm -hmm. But we found that in 12 percent of cases, people were jailed unlawfully and that those unlawful jailings fell disproportionately on people of color. We'll talk more about that. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're discussing a new report. It shows the majority of people awaiting federal trial, they're detained unlawfully. I'm joined by Allison Siegler, who's a clinical law professor at the University of Chicago and author of this report. And also with us is Kiana Givens, who's an interim federal public defender for the districts of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Kiana, I want to go back to the point that Allison just made, and, and you touched on earlier in the conversation that across all of these findings from the report, we're going to we're seeing that there are significant racial and economic disparities in who actually gets detained, talking specifically black and brown defendants and low income people. Does this match your experience in the courtroom, Kiana? Absolutely. Um, It matches our experience, especially because we have a disproportionate amount of black and brown and poor people coming into the courthouse, period, right? So if you bring mostly those folks into the courthouse, you're also going to disproportionately detain them. Yeah. Why are we seeing these disparities, do you think, Kiana? I think in black and brown communities are over police. They have increased contact with um, police in the community and it all begins at arrest, right? So if you have more contact, you have more arrests in those communities. Those arrests lead to them being brought into state or federal court. Mm -hmm. And when you don't apply the law and they end up being over overly detained. Yeah. And and Allison, these bonds, they're set incredibly high, right? Talk more about the excessive financial burden that 
is created by bail. So federal law prohibits judges from locking somebody in jail simply because they're too poor to pay for their freedom. Um, And there's this assumption, actually, that the federal system doesn't have a cash bail problem like the states. But what we found was one third of the time when judges were imposing some kind of money condition, the person was too poor to pay it and they were locked in jail. Um, And 95 percent of the people who faced these money bails were people of color. Mm. Here's the thing, too, Allison. Prosecutors and and judges, they might argue that uh, detention is protecting society from, from people who might go out and commit crimes again. Is there validity to that? There actually isn't. You know, Sasha, there's a ton of evidence that shows the exact opposite, which is that locking people in jail makes them more likely to commit crimes and actually undermines community safety. And there's lots of evidence also that people who are released in federal cases don't pose much danger. Like 99% of the people who are released and returned to their homes with their families, they are never rearrested while they're on release. Well, if that's what the data show, then why, do, why would they use that argument so frequently? You know, I think there's a lot of appealing to fear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of fear thing. And, um, and, and unfortunately, judges appear to be moved by fear sometimes more than they are moved by the law. Kiana, can you tell us about the human costs that mass detention has on, on people who are detained? Absolutely. I mean, it separates families. People lose their jobs. They can lose their housing. Sometimes when they're the primary caregiver, they lose their custody to their children. And this has ripple effects for generational income growth, right? So this one decision can really fundamentally change the trajectory of a family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also quite expensive yes, to Sasha. detain people, right? Yes. I mean, federal jailing costs taxpayers more than $1 billion per year. And and people who we put in jail are spending on average now one year in jail. And as we sit here today, there are 118,000 human beings, human beings locked in federal jails in this country. So the costs, the human costs are quite high and the financial costs. Mm-hmm. You interviewed a number of judges and, and prosecutors and, and public defenders as part of this report, right? Talk more about maybe a, a sense that they gave you of how or why this culture of detention was created in the first place. I know you talked earlier about fear. Yeah, right? so it's really interesting. What we heard over and over again is this is just how we've always done it. And judges were following courtroom habit and these longstanding practices rather than actually following the law. On the fear point, Sasha, there's, you know, there's this thing called the Willie Horton problem, which is this fear that uh, for a judge, you know, if I release somebody, they might go out and commit a new crime. But Mm -hmm. as I said, the evidence shows the exact opposite. The evidence shows that really is not happening in the federal system. And I think some of the problem is this crisis is not affecting people in power, right? The people who it falls upon are overwhelmingly poor um, sorry, this crisis is not affecting people in power. It's just affecting poor people of color. I yeah. mean, that's that's where it's that's where it's falling. So the situation, Allison, it's clearly pretty bad, right? You make some recommendations in the report, though, about how we could possibly solve them. Talk to us about those. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty simple, Sasha. Like, I think judges need to base their their decisions on the law and the data rather than on habit and fear. They need to stop jailing people on money bails they're too poor to pay. They need to appoint lawyers for all indigent individuals. That's going to reduce unlawful jailing, and that's going to reduce racial disparities. Kiana, does the system allow for accountability of these judges? It really, I don't think it does in concrete ways. Um, Why do you say that? 
in the federal system, our judges have lifetime appointments, right? Um, and when you add that to the fear and just the culture, the ecosystem within any given district, um, I think it's really hard to break through and get judges to police themselves um, to the point that there is all of this data that most of the public and the federal um, public defenders do not get to see. The judges know that there's a race problem. They know that there's an over-incarceration problem. Um, and yet they're not doing as much as they could about it. So as a public defender, Keanu, what do you want to see change in the courtroom? I want to see, you know, Allison makes a good point that every indigent person should be appointed counsel. I would say every person coming into federal court at their initial appearance should receive counsel, period, whether they have money or not. The question is late for later on whether that public defense continues. But every person should have counsel when they are presented before a judge. Um, I think that there also there are programs that, that even I know national at the at the Office of Administrative Courts is doing. Um, it's called the DROP program. It's the Detention Reduction Outreach Program. Mm-hmm. But Districts self-select whether they invite them in, but the statistics show that when drop is invited into a district, that the detention rates change. They improve. Mm -hmm. More people are released, better outcomes. So I think those are really concrete ways that individual districts can make a difference. To that end, is there anywhere in the country, Allison, that you think could serve as an example? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, so I think the answer here is court watching and training. I think this is how we change things. I have a lot of hope. I mean, the Chicago federal court provides a real exemplar that judges elsewhere could follow because when we studied Chicago, we shared our data that there were problems and judges and prosecutors started adhering much more closely to the law. Um, And one judge even said to me and my students, you know, you help judges and prosecutors realize that we'd been doing things wrong for a while. And then the next time we did court watching in Chicago, judges did not jail a single person unlawfully. And since our study, there has been a 12% decrease in the federal jailing rate in Chicago. And and the sky has not fallen. In fact, re-arrest rates in Chicago were lower Mm -hmm. after we stopped locking so many people up than before. Funny how that worked. Yeah. Yeah. We'll leave it there. That was Allison Siegler, clinical professor of law and founder of the Federal Criminal Justice Clinic at the University of Chicago. Also, Kiana Givens, interim federal public defender for the districts of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Thank you both.